Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ryan's Remarkable Mycology Podcast. We have a great episode today. We've got Langdon Cook on the show. He's the author of books about the intersection of food, nature, and people. And he stumbled into a fascinating story, which he ended up turning into a book called The Mushroom Hunters. It's all about his journey towards attempting to uncover the secrets of commercial mushroom pickers who can pick upwards of 100 pounds of mushrooms in one day sometimes. I heard Langdon give a talk at a Colorado Mycological Society meeting earlier this summer, and let me tell you, y'all are in for quite a story about the wacky underground wild forage mushroom market. Um, We'll talk about some tips and tricks for recreational foraging, the buyer and seller relationships of commercial mushrooms, the globalization of this not quite legal, not quite illegal mushroom market, and some tips for preparation and recipes when you hopefully do find mushrooms. First off, just want to apologize in advance for the quality of this recording. Uh, My microphone was on the fritz during this show. I don't really know what happened, but it sounds a little weird and tinny. Um, So just look past that, hopefully. If you are enjoying this podcast, um, just know that there are more episodes on the way. I've got two already um, recorded that I just need to edit, which, spoiler alert, is taking a lot longer than I expected. And uh, I've been a busy boy, so that's why there's been a bit of a delay here. Um, But those should be coming soon. Keep an eye out. Episode 5. Well, I won't spoil it. Uh, You'll just have to stay tuned. And if you give a review or a rating of the podcast and send it to me on Instagram or uh, email, I will give you a shout out in the next podcast episode. So if that's something that interests you, go ahead and and do that. Speaking of which, you can find me on Instagram. I am at Remarkable Mushroom Emporium. You can also search the podcast title, Ryan's Remarkable Mycology Podcast, and it should pop up. You can also email me. My email is remarkablemushroomemporium at gmail.com. And you can just send me questions, comments, feedback. Uh, If you think you have a good guest idea, that is always welcome. Um, And yeah, I hope to hear from some of you. And without any further ado, let's just go ahead and get into our conversation with Langdon Cook. All right, so joining me now is Langdon Cook. Langdon has written three books that have been published, and the first book was called Fat of the Land, Adventures of the 21st Forager. Um, He also has a 2017 book called Upstream, Searching for Wild Salmon from River to Table. But the book that we're here to talk about, uh, at least the most in-depth, is called The Mushroom Hunters, uh, which has a new edition that's being released uh, in the next month. So um, I actually heard Langdon give a talk at the Colorado Mycological Society meeting earlier this month, and um, I thought the story was super interesting, um, just about the underground wild foraged mushroom market. So I think um, we can just start off, Langdon, by asking how are you, and uh, tell me about how you got started with this mushroom hunter project. 
Sure. Well, it's great to be with you, Ryan. Um, so um, the germination of the mushroom hunters um, actually began with my first book, Fat of the Land, uh, which is a collection of personal essays on wild foods and foraging. And I was doing research for a chapter in that book on morel hunting. Uh, I think it was 2007. Um, there had been a big fire the year before. Um, in fact, it was the largest fire in Washington state history up to that point. Since then, unfortunately, we've had several, but it was 200,000 acres. It was the tripod complex, um, just north of the little mountain town of Winthrop, Washington, on the eastern slope of the North Cascades near the Canadian border. And I was up there in the wilderness with some friends hunting morels. I'm sure as um, much of your audience uh, that's into mushrooms knows, um, we often have these huge fruitings of morels the spring following wildfire. Um, this is a phenomenon in the American sort of arid west um, in the montane forests. Uh, and uh, mushroom hunters have really dialed into it, especially in recent years. Um, so you'll often see many hunters out there in the spring following wildfire. So we were um, walking through, you know, burned over forest with our baskets, uh, feeling pretty good about ourselves because, you know, we had enough for a few meals. And uh, we encountered these two guys in the woods uh, and they were each wearing backpacks, but they weren't the sort of backpacks that you would wear on a, on a backpacking trip. They were more like just duffel bags kind of stretched over you know, some sort of frame. And, uh, and they were just loaded with morels, even even at, you know, 100 feet, I could see, uh, you know, morels kind of brimming the top of their of their backpacks. And I, I estimated they each had about 75 pounds or so of morels. And at that moment, I just, I realized, okay, here were two people who had really unlocked nature's secrets. I always thought of morel hunting and mushroom hunting in general as sort of like nature's Rubik's cube. You know, you have to figure out all the different combinations before you get it right. There's, you know, tree type and soil type and slope aspect and, and microclimate and all, all these different factors go into successful mushroom hunting. And here were two guys who were basically hunting in, in the sort of same general area as us, but they had filled up their packs with, you know, nearly 100 pounds apiece. Uh, and I realized right away that they were commercial mushroom pickers. Unlike us, um, they were there um, to pick mushrooms for profit. And, um, you know, every single mushroom that they had in their packs was going to be sold to a buyer. And, uh, and I was just intrigued. Uh, and we looked at these guys and they, I'm sure, were probably just as sort of surprised to see us in the woods because this is really back then this was you know 2007 it was before kind of the the sort of gold rush of recreational mushroom hunters that we would see in subsequent years you know with facebook groups and all that sort of thing um you know you, you still didn't have nearly as many people in the woods back then and uh and so we kind of looked at each other and then they just kind of turned on their heels and disappeared back into the timber and it was almost like a Bigfoot sighting, uh, but it gnawed at me. Like, how had these guys just, you know, figured out nature secrets to the point where they could collect so many mushrooms? Um, so it was at that moment that I vowed that I would figure it out and that I would get to know some of these people and 
follow them around and maybe learn some of their secrets. And I just kind of knew some vague um, things about the, the, the mushroom trade. What I would come to learn is that it's the largest all cash business in North America, at least the largest that's legal. <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided I'm going to get on the mushroom trail as it was known. Um, this is sort of the informal kind of moving underground economy of mushroom pickers and buyers. And then the chefs who are the end users, um, who are, who are buying the mushrooms. Um, and, uh, and it, and it, it basically, the mushroom trail for the most part, um, the bullseye for it is in the greater Pacific Northwest. Um, so if you imagine an area kind of stretching, you know, up through sort of Northern California, Oregon, Washington, into sort of BC, even Southeast Alaska, over through the Yukon and down through Idaho and Western Montana, um, if you draw a circle around that area, basically you can pick mushrooms every single day of the year somewhere inside that circle. Um, and that is where most of the mushrooms um, that are being, you know, foraged commercially and sold are getting picked. And the pickers move around following the flushes um, through the seasons and the buyers follow them. Um, and that's really kind of how it works. So I got on the mushroom trail and, uh, you know, at first my, my wife was, she was not so supportive. <laughs> she was frankly worried about me. There were lots of rumors, uh, even newspaper stories about territorial pickers and gunplay in the woods and, and uh, you know, random acts of violence and, and that sort of thing. It, you know, it was very much seen as a kind of sort of frontier style kind of capitalism going on. Um, resource extraction, kind of, um, I don't know, uh, you know, overtones of the of the gold rush era, um, you know, anything goes uh, in the woods sort of sort of deal. She was frankly worried about me, uh, but I was just too intrigued um, by by this whole scene, and um, and so I I basically just started going to places where I knew there was interest in mushrooms. But at first, this was really just kind of fairs and festivals and that sort of thing, mostly in the West. Um, I went to, although actually even in the Midwest, um, where people are absolutely crazy about morels, I, I went to Michigan and, uh, and took part in, uh, in a sort of a, a morel festival one spring where they have a, a morel hunting contest. Um, and I boarded a bus with a whole bunch of other you know, um, would be, you know, contestants and, uh, and went to a secret location and we had two hours to pick as many morels as we could. And there was some guy who picked more than 200 and, and was the champion. And I think I found like two, <laughs> was, I was completely, <laughs> be yeah, I was completely <laughs> bewildered by this new habitat. It was nothing like the Northwest. And most of the morels were found with hardwood trees, whereas we were mostly picking conifers out here. And, and it was just totally different habitat and I was out of my element, but, um, but it was super fun. But again, these were recreational hunters, very serious recreational hunters, but they weren't doing it for money. Uh, maybe for a little prestige, but, uh, but not, they weren't making their livelihood uh, from it. 
And then I ended up in the mountains of Colorado, uh, down at the Telluride uh, Mushroom Festival, which is one of the really great um, sort of long-lived mushroom festivals that's been going on for a long time. I think they're probably coming up on four decades. Um, and, uh, and I spent time with the folks there. But again, these are just very serious recreational hunters. Um, whereas, you know, the, the, the guys who were doing this for a livelihood they didn't have time to attend festivals and, and fairs and things like that. They weren't even eating their catch. You know, right. it was all, it was all currency for them. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it took a while, but eventually, you know, through a friend of a friend who knew somebody who had a relative, that sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, twisty and turn, turny kind of, uh, process, um, I got to know a guy named Doug Carnell. Um, and Doug is really representative of the first generation of, of professional mushroom pickers in North America. Um, so Doug had been a logger. He'd captained a crab boat. He'd dug for razor clams. He'd scavenged metal. You know, he'd done all sorts of kind of resource extraction jobs um, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but really what defined, you know, probably, you know, more than three decades of his working life was picking mushrooms. Whenever he needed money, whenever he was out of work, whenever he was between jobs, um, he was picking mushrooms. And, and at a certain point, um, really the job of mushroom hunting became his full-time employment. Uh, it was something that he started, I think, in the early 80s. Um, and that's really when this whole industry started to begin with. So he was there kind of from the get-go. Langdon goes on to say that wild mushroom foraging and really foraging in general really got going in the late 70s when people were starting to question a lot of the assumptions we had about the way we produce food and process food. Um, and that gave rise to things like the vegan movement, organic foods, planting your own gardens, canning and preserving, and really just being more mindful about the way we consume food. And you had a few restaurants scattered around the country um, that were really on top of that trend. Um, one of the first is very well known, Chez Panisse in Berkeley, still around. Um, and places like Chez Panisse would have what they referred to as the, as the backdoor forager. And this would be somebody who might just come around every now and then you know, knocking on the back door with a basket full of wild greens or mushrooms or berries or something like that to see if the chef might be interested in buying some. So it was very informal in the beginning. Um, but as we get into the 80s, um, especially in the Pacific Northwest, where we had a downturn in the timber industry, um, this was, you know, during the spotted owl controversy in the late 80s, early 90s, um, you had um, just less logging going on on public land um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of loggers out of work. Um, you know, they knew where the mushroom patches were because they work in the woods. Uh, and uh, here was a source of income for them. Um, so the first generation of, of commercial mushroom pickers were guys like Doug. Um, people who had been loggers or other sort of resource extractors living in the rural parts of the American West, especially the Pacific Northwest. Um, and they knew where the mushroom patches were. And, uh, and you had more businesses 
popping up, especially in Oregon, um, to, uh, to, to basically procure these products. Um, so it went from sort of a very sort of informal kind of uh, fly-by-night kind of business to much more structured um, with just more kind of people doing this for money. Um, you had field buyers out in the woods who were set up, um, you know, maybe on some lonely forest service road uh, to buy from the pickers as they came out of the woods each day. Um, and then, you know, the, the products would be rushed to market. These are obviously sort of ephemeral fleeting products and you really need to take care with how you handle them. Um, they have to be kept refrigerated and if they're going to be moved from place to place, it has to happen quickly. Um, and so, you know, over the, you know, fairly short period of the late eighties, early nineties, um, you know, it became sort of much more structured, um, with, with networks of pickers, um, and, uh, and the buyers who were out there in the field, um, where the pickers were working and then kind of rushing these foods to market, um, you know, through kind of basically wild food entrepreneurs and really every large city in America eventually would have a, a wild food entrepreneur, somebody running a business uh, in which they, um, you know, they were in touch with the network of pickers and um, they knew kind of the seasonality of these different products, um, when certain species were going to be available, where to be, you know, to get them. Uh, and then um, just to have the infrastructure to kind of, you know, rush those foods to market and be quick about it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, Doug was representative of that kind of first generation of picker. And through Doug, I got to know his favored buyer, the buyer that he sold most of his products to. And this is a guy named Jeremy Faber. Both Doug and Jeremy would become kind of major characters in my book. Uh, and Jeremy uh, had been, he had gone to school um, for forestry um, that was in Vermont and then traveled west and um, was working in restaurants and had been a chef. Um, but he was the sort of chef who on his day off would be out in the woods because he just loved hiking and skiing and being outdoors. And he was just always looking for wild foods to incorporate into, say, you know, the specials, um, you know, the special of the day, that sort of thing. And eventually he realized, well, he just really wanted to spend more time in the woods. Uh, and so he started his own business, um, you know, to, to, um, to bring these foods to market, forged and found edibles uh, based in Seattle. And so I got to know Jeremy. And I just started kind of hanging out with Doug and Jeremy and other pickers that they knew and other buyers and traveling with these guys uh, through the seasons um, as they really traversed the greater Northwest looking for just the most extraordinary foods uh, to bring to market. Um, and so I would camp with them, you know, in remote um, kind of patches scattered around the Northwest and I'd pick with them. And, uh, I even did some of my own picking for profit. Um, at one point I ended up in the Yukon with Jeremy picking morels and I basically funded my whole trip, uh, by selling morels back to Jeremy. But at the same time I was doing research for the book 
Um, so uh, that was a super fun trip. We, I spent about 10 days up in the Yukon, just camped in the wilderness, picking mushrooms. And Jeremy would end up spending a month up there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so that was kind of how I wormed my way into what is really a sort of subculture. Uh, most people just don't even know that this scene exists, even though it is the largest all cash business in North America, it's very kind of clandestine. You, you've probably heard that mushroom pickers can be somewhat secretive. And that's, that's a bit of a joke, um, you know, among folks, um, you know, we like to say, oh, I'll take you to my patch, but I'll have to blindfold you first, you know, that sort of thing. It, it's a bit of a joke, but at the same time, there's an element of truth there. Um, the pickers are really below the radar, first of all, because they're just in places where other people aren't. Um, often I'm asked if, um, you know, there's competition between the recreational mushroom pickers and, you know, mushroom picking in recent years has become quite popular. Um, and uh, if there's competition between recreational pickers and the guys who are doing this commercially. And I, my answer to that is that there are a few famous patches, you know, around the country where maybe you'll find both recreational and professional. But in general, the commercial pickers are working in woods that most recreational pickers wouldn't bother with. Um, these are often working woods, um, meaning sort of um, timberland forest, um, you know, forest that, um, that is, is essentially, you know, going to be cut down eventually um and uh, it's it's production forest and it can be it's not as nice as say being in a, an ancient old growth forest um these can be kind of you know tight kind of dark woods um they often don't have any trails there's really isn't recreation you're not going to have great views um these are just not the place where recreationists are going uh, but they are the sort of woods that really grow mushrooms. Uh, and, uh, and so those are the kind of woods that for the most part, um, the pickers are working in and you just don't see recreational mushroom hunters in those places. And so really they're kind of working out of sight. Um, and then the buyers are often set up on lonely forest service roads that, you know, most folks will never see um and so this whole sort of business is happening out of sight um and uh most people you know they'll go to a fancy restaurant in manhattan say and uh you know the the veal shanks or whatever will come you know adorned with a few morels on the plate and of course having those morels on the plate jacks up the price several more dollars you know but um but they won't even stop to think that oh, you know, this is a wild product. Like we don't farm morels. Um, somebody has to actually go into the woods and find these and bring them out and get them to market. Uh, most people don't stop to think about that. Um, so that's one of the reasons why a lot of these products can be quite expensive. Um, and uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever seen wild mushrooms at the marketplace, you might, might've been shocked to, to just see the sort of price tags um, that they come with. I mean, often, you know, they're more expensive, you know, at least by the pound than say, a, you know, the best cut of steak or something like that. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of this biz, despite being such a big business, it's mostly happening out of sight. Uh, and, and folks just don't really even know what's going on. Um, and so that was another factor that just really intrigued me. Um, so, so yeah, I got on the mushroom trail and spent a few years, uh, following these characters around, getting to kind of know how they did their work and what it was like, and just getting to know them as, um, individuals, um, and their stories. Um, I mentioned that Doug was representative of that sort of first generation of, uh, mushroom pickers that really got going in the late seventies, eighties, early nineties, um, the second generation, I also got to know, um, and these folks would come a little bit later, you know, more in the sort of late 80s and then through the 90s and into the aughts. But these were mostly um, immigrants from war-torn countries in Southeast Asia. Um, so a lot of um, Vietnamese, Lao, um, Cambodian, uh, Hmong, Mien, um, just, um, a lot of folks from, from different areas of Southeast Asia. Um, and, um, you know, they had amazing stories to tell. I interviewed quite a few of them. Um, you know, a typical story might go like this, um, a woman from Cambodia, um, who I talked to, she had fled as a little girl with her family. Um, they escaped across the Mekong river. They were running from the Khmer Rouge. Um, they escaped across the Mekong River, ended up in a Thai refugee camp for a few years, um, and then somehow managed to get sponsored, I think, by a church to travel um, to Australia. And from there, um, went to Canada and made it down to the U.S. Uh, from Canada and settled in Raymond, Washington on the coast. And all along the West Coast, you have these settlements of, um, you know, Southeast Asian immigrants uh, in places like Raymond, Springfield, Oregon, uh, Weed, um, California, Redding, California. And um, a lot of these folks, uh, if you can imagine, um, you know, as they were struggling to escape, um, you know, from, from their home countries, um, they really had to survive in the jungles. Um, so wandering into, you know, an American patch of woods to find some mushrooms is no big deal. I, I would see amazing stuff. I would see folks come out with, you know, 50 pounds of mushrooms and they'd be in flip-flops, you know? <laughs> um, you're not going to see a lot of fleece and Patagonia and Gore-Tex and, you know, fancy hiking boots and that sort of stuff. It's going to be you know, clothing from the thrift store, um, you know, hoodies and, uh, you know, and they're amazing mushroom pickers. Um, so that's kind of the second generation, uh, of, uh, of professional mushroom pickers. And then you would have a sort of third generation, um, which is, um, largely, um, kind of a result of the apple trail, what's often called the apple trail out of Mexico and Central America. Um, and these would be migrants, um, you know, who would start as fruit pickers in, in California. Um, but you can imagine, you know, being bent over in a strawberry patch for, you know, 12 hours in the heat and looking up into the distant mountains and somebody telling you, you know, you, well, you could go up there and 
pick mushrooms instead and wander through the woods and be your own boss and you know not have somebody telling you what to do well that sounds a lot more attractive um but uh you know the thing is is it's very it's difficult um and uh it is still stoop labor you know you're in the woods for hours at a time um you have to you know you have to know your way around um I never saw any of these folks with map or compass or anything like that, but you have to be able to get into the woods and get yourself out of the woods safely uh, and, and pick a lot of mushrooms and buy a lot, you know, with something like chanterelles, that's really a volume pick. You need to go into the woods every day and, you know, pick 40, 50, 60 pounds of chanterelles um, to make it, um, to make it profitable. And those sort of numbers just baffle the recreational hunters because most of us, when we go mushroom hunting for the table, you know, if we find 10 pounds of chanterelles, we're super stoked. Like that's a great day, you know, but that just isn't going to pay the bills if you're doing this professionally. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty uh, incredible like market and story that you, um, that you wormed your way into, as you said, Let's talk a little bit about the um, burn morel hunts, because one of the things that I learned from your talk is uh, the different types of burns that um, are kind of spread throughout um, where the wildfire finishes. Um, you talked about hot burn versus ned red needle burn. Right. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit about that and like how to identify that um, and how you would go about, you know, um, getting to the best place to find burn morels. Sure. So when I give slide presentations, um, I have a, a photo that I like to, a slide that I like to show um, that depicts one of my characters. It's, it's Jeremy Faber, the one who owns the Business Forge and Found Edibles. And we're standing um, basically on the border of Montana in, and Idaho in the Bitterroot Mountains. And we're at about 7,500 feet in the Bitterroots, and we're looking down into Idaho um, from that elevation. And, um, and you can see just the mosaic of burn in the background. And Jeremy is there with his binoculars. Um, and what he's doing is he's scouting. Uh, and I use this slide to illustrate, um, you know, for my audiences, what Jeremy is looking for. Because in the photo, you can see the mosaic of burn. So in the, in the immediate kind of background, you see what just looks like wildfire devastation. Um, it's blackened. Um, the trees are clearly all dead. Um, and, um, and this is what the pickers refer to as hot burn. And the hot burn is an area to be avoided. Um, now, it's often the first place that a new recreational hunter will go to because it just seems like classic, you know, wildfire burn zone. Um, and it is in the sense that, yes, um, you can see that the fire roared through, you know, here and absolutely devastated the forest and wiped out everything. And now you just have some blackened spars standing in the ash, basically. And those areas, the hot burn, they will produce morels but the morels are just subjected to withering heat from the sun because there's no shade 
And of course, the wind is whistling through as well. There's nothing to block the breeze. And so any morels that pop up are immediately going to dry on the stem. And then the other thing that happens in the hot burn is when it rains, um, the rain basically splashes down on the ash and kicks up the ash. And the pickers call that ash splash. And what happens is the ash basically like kind of kicks up into the mushrooms themselves and, um, and gets into the, you know, how morels have those kind of honeycomb pits. Um, it just gets in there. You can never get it out. Um, no, no matter how much you clean them. And so the morels are kind of sandy and gritty and they're just, they're not palatable. Um, so you avoid the hot zone. What you're looking for, and this is also illustrated in this slide, um, are the areas where the fire came through more as a creeper fire. Um, and in such spots, from a distance, it looks almost red. Um, we call this the red needle burn because what's happened is, is the trees have been stressed and they will have fire scars on them. They'll, their trunks will have black marks on them where the fire burned, but they're still alive. Um, but they drop all their needles um, in the stress of that, um, of that moment. And, um, and that sort of red needle duff um, becomes um, just a really kind of great um, substrate for growing morels. It holds in the moisture um, the morels come up nice and clean. Just want to jump in here. Uh, if you heard that ding a few seconds ago, that is just Langdon's phone. Um, unfortunately, it's not your booty call. So um, just go ahead and ignore that. It will go off a couple times more uh, throughout the rest of the episode. So apologies for that. You know, in those sort of forests with the red needle um, duff, it's going to be shadier. Um there will be some, you know, most of the trees will still be alive. You'll see green trees. Um, and in those spots, you can just have phenomenal morel fruitings. The other th thing that Jeremy was looking for is he was scouting, you know, at that elevation of about 7,500 feet, looking down um, into the sort of folds of topography. He was looking for the little green areas along the edges of the burn. And those are, and that's often that that'll often be creeks, um, and those places also are, can just be phenomenal, right on the edge of the burn where it's still green. Um, and so essentially, he was up there scouting, trying to decide where he was going to go, um, and getting a better look at the burn. Um, and that basically saves a lot of time because once you're in the burn, you kind of lose your sense of perspective. Um, you know, these are huge areas. Um, often a burn will be, you know, many, many thousands of acres. Um, and uh, it's rugged territory. Um, you're going to be walking, you know, probably a minimum of 10 miles a day um, to pick morels in these conditions. And you're going through just abject conditions. You know, you're catwalking on down trees and jumping over fallen logs and um, the ground is unstable, and sometimes um, you actually kind of fall through the ground because it's, it can be like stumps burn out underground, but you can't see that necessarily, and you take a step and you kind of go right through. Um, and so they're hazardous. Um, there's often sort of sharpened um, kind of, you know, 
spikes um, throughout the woods where branches and knots and in the trees and things like that basically burned into sort of sharpened, you know, um, it, it's, it's just, it can be very hazardous. Um, and then, of course, you know, weakened trees will fall over in the breeze um, and you have to watch yourself. Um, it can be very steep and unforgiving. And so you're just, you're in difficult terrain, working hard, trying to locate, um, you know, the good fruitings because you don't just walk in to woods and find morels all over the place. You still have to find the right habitat um, and you have to know your trees. Uh, whenever I'm teaching classes uh, and people always want to know about mushrooms, they're just sort of the poster, you know, children for foraging these days. And the, what I tell them is, well, if you want to pick mushrooms for the table, the first thing to do is join a mycological society. That's probably the most helpful way to kind of learn about mushrooms. The second thing is a little less intuitive. That is learn your trees because mushrooms have relationships with trees. And once you start to kind of unravel those relationships, um, you can find the mushrooms. So even in the burn zone, you kind of need to know your trees because the morels um, will be much more plentiful with certain types of trees. Um, and often those certain types of trees, you know, you have your north slopes and your south slopes and uh, the north facing slopes might grow totally different trees than the hotter um, south facing slopes. And so you need to sort of, you need to put the whole ecological kind of <laughs> equation together. Um, to, to figure it out. Um, but it is, it's like a puzzle to work out. And that's, and that's one of the, the, the things that I really love about mushroom hunting. It's a challenge. You're outdoors. Um, you're, you're just, you're, you really need to be in touch with the natural world. Um, and you have yourself and your thoughts as you traipse through the woods. Um, it's a great place to get some thinking done and uh, you know you're going to get a lot of exercise out of it as well because it is hard work yeah yeah it sounds like it i i, uh, I don't know if a recreational picker uh, always wants to go through those hazardous woods <laughs> but um yeah so you, you you mentioned like a little bit of uh you know tips for if you don't have patches that have been handed down to you through generations like the commercial pickers um do you have, like, so you mentioned tree relationships, slopes, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, A, is there anything else that you didn't mention? And B, are there any good resources you would recommend for learning about some of these, like, ecological conditions that can help you locate mushrooms? Sure. So I would say that, you know, it really depends on where you live as well. Um, you know, there's so many different varieties of edible mushroom um, but you know, it depends kind of what region you live in. Each region kind of has its own specialties. Um, so for instance, you know, if you're living in the Southern Rockies, um, there's a type of bleat mushroom, which the Italians would call porcini, um, which grows at fairly high elevations, um, in, in the Southern Rockies that, you know, actually should be popping right now. Um, because they come up with they the are. monsoons. Okay, yeah, found, all right. I found some last weekend. It was exciting. <laughs> oh, good. So you found you found some Belitis rubriceps last weekend. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, you know, if you're in the Southwest, there's another type of Belit, 
uh, Belitis barosii, which we call the white king belit. Um, and so, you know, each region has kind of its special varieties and you need to, you kind of need to learn their habitat, what trees they grow with. And then, you know, there are certain species that will grow with different trees. So for instance, um, take Matsutake. Um, where I live, I'm primarily looking for Matsutake with Douglas fir, especially more mature Douglas fir. And I should, I should mention that Matsutake is kind of the favorite mushroom of Japan, uh, but it's becoming increasingly popular here in North America, where it turns out we have quite a bit of Matsutake. Um, but in any event, I, I tend to mostly look for Matsutake with big, mature Douglas firs. Um, but as you head south, especially once you get um, into kind of southwestern Oregon or northern California, you might be more apt to find it um, with a type of oak called tan oak. Um, and so, you know, same species of mushroom, um, but different host tree. Um, so, you, you know, it really depends where you live. Um, and you need to kind of, you need to learn your trees and you need to learn um, just the, you know, the sort of habitat. Um, and you have to be ready to just, you know, get out in the woods and, um, and really get some exercise. Um, one of the things I tell people is you need to learn how to stay found. So it's important to, to, you know, learn how to use a map and compass. I know everybody has their phones these days. Um, that's really changed things, frankly. Um, I think a lot, I see people in many more remote areas now, uh, more so than I used to, um, because, because of the phone. Um, and so, you know, it's really easy to get, you know, a, a GPS app and use that to kind of navigate your way through the woods. But just remember that phones do fail. I think as we all know, um, you can run out of battery or you can drop it, it can get wet, whatever. Um, sometimes you lose a signal. Um, you know, there are, there are ways that phones fail. And in that, you know, scenario, you need to find your way back out. Um, and so, you know, it's really easy when you're mushroom hunting, you're kind of looking down at your feet, you're wandering through the woods, you're all excited, especially if you start finding mushrooms, then um, you kind of lose track of, of where you are. And, you know, an hour later, you look up and look around and go, hmm, uh, you know, what was that creek that I crossed back there? Like, how many forks did I take? You know, was it right or left? <laughs> and uh, the woods, you know, they start to kind of look the same. And you wonder and you question where you came from, which direction. And uh, it's very easy to get turned around and lost in the woods. Unfortunately, pretty much every year, there are a few news stories about mushroom hunters who get turned around and end up um, perishing from exposure um, in the woods. So it's important to stay found um, and, um, you know, just kind of learn your way around the woods. Um, you know, don't go deep the first time you go out there trying to hunt mushrooms, maybe work your way up to that. Um, but it's a great way, you know, to learn woodcraft, um, to just become more familiar with the landscape, um, with the woods and the mountains. Um, I mean, I find, I love to do all kinds of things in the outdoors. 
mushroom hunting has really become one of my favorites. Um, it just, it really kind of brings you in touch with the natural world. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just, absolutely. I think, um, a lot of times, like just going hiking with friends or something, you're always looking up at the, at the trees and the views and the, the kind of, uh, rolling hills or mountains or wherever you are. But, um, it's a really different mindset for me when I'm mushroom hunting, cause you're looking at the ground and you're seeing all of the, you know, smaller species of, of plants and trees and, uh, and obviously the mushrooms, but uh, it kind of puts you in a different perspective, which I think is really refreshing. Um, yeah, rather myself. than taking that sort of long distance view, it's much more the up close and personal, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're looking at things right around your feet, you know, what is that? But you know, here's the other thing, um, uh, mushroom pickers will develop um, all sorts of, um, you know, different ways of kind of, um, knowing that it's time to go look for a certain species. And often we use, say, wildflowers, um, or I, I will even use birds um, to sort of know um, when it's time to look for a certain type of thing. So for instance, like in, I live in Seattle, and when Western tanagers, you know, are arriving from, from the tropics, you know, uh, to breed uh, up in, in my neck of the woods, when I hear them singing, in my backyard, I know it's time to look for morels um, because they generally arrive right around the time the first morels are, are popping up, kind of, you know, early May. Um, and, uh, and so even birds can be indicators, but there are all sorts of wildflowers that we look for um, and other plants. And, um, and then when you're in the habitat, there, you know, there are just certain conditions and, and you learn to just really kind of see those conditions. Um, you know, you can be driving down the road at 50 miles an hour and just looking at the woods going, ah, that looks like the right habitat for spring porcini, you know, or that looks like the right habitat for morels or, or whatever the species might be. Um, and uh, you can even see it at speed, you know, once you, once you, you know, develop an eye for it. Um, so yeah, it is a lifelong learning pursuit. Uh, and I, and I just find sort of, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, it's just, it's really fun to do the research, uh, to make the connections, um, and to just know that you're just kind of getting a, a sort of a larger sense of your ecological niche and where you live and, and your habitat. Yeah, for sure. I would still call myself a novice mushroom hunter <laughs> but um i can definitely second your uh, advice to join a mycological society because um when you go on these forays that your your society will organize uh you get people with you know 10 15 years of, of mushroom hunting experience and they know exactly what to look for in your specific location so um i've learned a lot about the colorado rockies and just the places that we've gone um, through that. So yeah, um, good advice. Yeah, there's so much pleasure to be gained from just learning more about your home and your surroundings. And I think mushrooms are a great kind of portal into that. Uh, well, one part of your story that you went over in the talk um, is the buying and grading process right. of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so like, you know, the, the highest grade goes to chefs and then, uh, the lowest grade are, are not going to be sold for that much. Could you just talk a little bit about that and like how the buyer seller relationship operates? Yeah, sure. Um, and it, and it depends on the mushroom species. There's certain mushrooms, um, which get graded, uh, and, um, probably the two best examples of that would be porcini and matsutake. Um, both of which have multiple grades. Um, and it depends on the buyer, really, how many grades. But when I was following Jeremy Faber around um, with Porcini, he generally graded it on a sort of three-point scale. So the really nice, firm, immature button mushrooms of Porcini were number ones. Um, and then a slightly more mature and hence kind of larger, maybe a little bit softer mushroom would be a number two. And those were the two varieties that the chefs really wanted. They wanted especially the number ones because they were just so versatile in the kitchen um, with those really firm kind of small um, mushrooms. They could be used in all sorts of different ways. Um, and also they look really good on the plate. So if you cut a porcini mushroom in half and then continue to just slice it on the profile like that, it has that great kind of mushroom shape to it. And so the chefs really like that. So they would pay the most for the number ones. Um, you know, the number twos are very good as well. And then the number threes would be more uh, kind of large, mature, softer mushrooms. Um, sometimes they might have some insect damage, um, and those would generally get sliced up and dried, um, and they would command a fraction of the price of the number ones and number twos. So for instance, I can remember a time watching the grading going on and Jeremy was paying $11 a pound for number ones, but he was only paying $2 a pound for the number threes, um, to give you a sense of, um, kind of the, the cost differences. Um, with matsutake, um, that mushroom might be graded on a scale as much as one to eight. Um, now, most of the matsutake is getting shipped to Japan, uh, where it is the favorite mushroom. And for reasons that I go into in the book um, that are kind of complicated and I won't get into here now, but the matsutake harvest in Japan is declining. Uh, but we have lots of matsutake, and there's also matsutake in other places like China and elsewhere. And so Japan is getting most of its matsutake abroad. Um, and in the, Jap the Japanese matsutake often ends up at auction houses, um, kind of like bluefin tuna. Um, and the different grades will be auctioned off. And the number ones and number twos really command the highest price. And those would be button mushrooms. And when I say button, I just mean sort of immature. In other words, they're not fully mature mushrooms. They're kind of smaller, they're tighter, they're firmer. Uh, and in the case of matsutake, they have a veil that covers the gills. Um, and eventually this veil sort of tears away on its own and the gills open up and that's how the mushroom disperses its spores. Um, but when it's young, it's not ready to sporulate and the, and the veil will cover up those gills. And that's how the Japanese really want to get their matsutake. Those are the, those, those mushrooms that have intact veils covering up the gills 
command the highest price in Japan. Um, and then if there's a little tear in the veil, well, then it becomes a number three or a number four. And, you know, if the veil is completely gone and the mushroom cap is kind of open, um, then uh, with the gills exposed, that might even be, you know, a five, six, or seven. Um, so that's kind of how Matsutake gets graded. Um, and the pickers, um, there's a lot of Matsutake harvesting that goes on on the eastern slope of the Cascades in Oregon, um, which I write about in the book. I visited a Matsutake camp there uh, near the town of Shamolt, Oregon. This is just north of Crater Lake. Um, and one of the reasons this is such a good Matsutake area is that Matsutake likes sandy soils. And so you will see a lot of Matsutake right along the Pacific coast, literally a stone's throw from the ocean, where you have those sort of naturally sandy soils um, from the ocean beaches. But then you will also have lots of Matsutake up in the mountains, right along the spine of the Cascades, because it's a volcanic range. And that volcanic uh, pumice from, you know, millennia uh, of eruptions has formed this very sandy sort of soil. And the Matsutake like that. And so there are areas in eastern, kind of on the eastern slope of the Cascades in Washington and Oregon, where you have um, really intensive Matsutake picking going on. So when I was camping with Matsutake pickers near the town of Shamolt, Oregon and the Cascades, I think there was something like maybe 3,000 other pickers. Um, there were 30 buyers in town. Um, it was really, um, it was extraordinary. They were getting about $20 a pound um, for number ones and number twos that year. And I write about this in the book. I went back the following year and they were getting $5 a pound. And that's one of the things about commercial mushroom hunting is that the prices are constantly kind of ebbing and flowing, going up and going down. And a lot of this is because it's become a globalized business. And so with Matsutake, um, in the early years of the Matsutake commercial harvest uh, in Oregon, especially kind of the early 90s, um, before Matsutake had been found in other parts of the world, the Japanese were paying extraordinary prices um, for the Matsutake. So the price just went through the roof. And the pickers, it was like a gold rush atmosphere. Um, they were making a lot of money. Um, and then, you know, with the development of China, um, you know, they've had intense uh, development over the last few decades. And suddenly there are roads and bridges and highways in places where they, they never used to have all that infrastructure. And they've been finding uh, Matsutake in those places. And so suddenly you have a glut of Matsutake on the market and the price crashes. Um, I actually spent time in China um, basically to do research for my book. A lot of that, most of that material never made it into the book because I felt like I was really telling more of an American story. Um, but it was great to get that global perspective on the mushroom trade. You know, here in North America, we're only just beginning our love affair with mushrooms. We basically live in a mycophobic society. We're kind of afraid of mushrooms. But in other parts of the world, they've had, you know, these long love affairs with mushrooms. Um, in Eastern Europe, for instance, the Mediterranean, um, large parts of China, um, Mesoamerica, they love mushrooms. 
um, and have loved them for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, but to go to China and see the commercial mushroom trade in action there, it was so interesting because it just was very similar to the commercial trade in North America. You had these kind of settlements in the woods where people were seasonally camping and picking mushrooms. And then you had sort of hangers on who were sort of entrepreneurial, who, you know, were basically servicing the mushroom pickers. So, you know, there was, um, I visited one mushroom camp in, um, in China, in Yunnan province. Uh, and uh, in the camp, there was somebody operating like a little canteen store. You know, they were selling cigarettes and sodas and, and, and you know, chips and, and, and things like that. And then there was somebody else who, who was running sort of a little soup kitchen. Um, and it was the same thing in Oregon. Um, you know, I was there with the pickers and buyers and there was somebody running an informal, um, you know, noodle shop there where you could go and get a bowl, big bowl of pho at the end of the day for about two bucks, you know, if you didn't feel like you were exhausted from picking mushrooms and you didn't feel like, you know, making dinner back in camp, you could go get for just $2, a big bowl of pho, you know? And so very similar scene in the woods of Oregon. Um, and, uh, and it was just, it was just fascinating to spend time with these folks and they'll, they'll be camped there for like two months picking matsutake. Uh, and then they move on to the next, stop on the mushroom trail very cool uh okay uh, i want to talk a little bit about like um how you like to prepare your mushrooms because you're because you're uh you have recipes on your website and things like that um but first i wanted to ask you uh you you mentioned like the grade three porcini will be dried out right um and and got and purchased for a lot less what are some things that you can do with them? Because um, a lot of uh, people, when they find porcini in the woods, they'll be like the really big ones because those are the easiest to see. Sure, <laughs> and sure. they might have like uh, the worms in them yeah. or, or whatever, but they're still, you can still um, dry them out and, and do things with them. So do you have any like uh, recommendations sure. to, to make soup or something? Oh, I definitely have tips for that. So you're right. Um, those big kind of blown out, porcini mushrooms that are so easy to see. And the pickers call those flags uh, because they're very visible. Uh, and But the thing about, you know, finding flags is that you need to look nearby because you might find fresh buttons coming up as well. Um, but in any event, definitely if the flags aren't, you know, too wormed out, um, if they aren't too soft, definitely harvest them and then take them home and I slice them, I don't know, between an eighth and a quarter of an inch, and I dry them. And I have a dehydrator with about eight shelves, so good-sized dehydrator at home. I can get a lot of mushrooms into it. And um, what I'll do is I'll hit the, the mushrooms with very high heat for the first, say, half hour, 45 minutes. Um, and this encourages any insects that are in the mushrooms to evacuate. <laughs> and so if there are worms in your mushroom, by hitting them with a high heat, they will be gone. They will fall to the bottom of your dehydrator and you don't have to worry about them. Of course, I know lots of people who don't worry about them anyway, and they just figure they're getting a little extra protein. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I know that it does, uh, it's a little skeevy. It, it, you know, when you see all those holes in your mushrooms and every now and then you come across a worm, it's not the best. 
Um, so yeah, if you hit them with a high heat, they will fall out of the mushroom to the bottom of the dehydrator and you don't have to worry about them. And then I turn down the heat, you know, to maybe 115, something like that, 120. Um, and I just let it go overnight. Um, you want the mushrooms to be cracker dry in the morning. Um, you want to be able to kind of break them in two. Uh, any mushroom that hasn't thoroughly dried can ruin your batch because once they're done, um, you know, you're putting them in, in jars or in Ziploc bags or some sort of, um, you know, storage. And if you have any mushroom that wasn't quite dried out, well, it's going to be moist inside and uh, you might come back a month later and look in your bag and find it's totally mossed over um, because of that one mushroom that you failed to completely dry. So be very careful about drying the mushrooms. Uh, and then what I really like to do with my dried porcini is, I mean, you can reconstitute the slices um, and put them in dishes, but I prefer to grind them up in, in a spice grinder um, and powder them. Um, that mushroom powder is really a secret ingredient in the kitchen. Um, it's useful for so many things. First of all, it's loaded with umami. Uh, and so it's just, it's so flavorful. You can make uh, porcini salts with it, um, or you can make rubs by combining that mushroom powder with, you know, other, other spices, paprika and, and uh, garlic salt and, you know, cayenne or, you know, however you like to make rubs, chili powder, etc. Um, so you can make really great rubs with it um, or just take a spoonful, you know, a tablespoon of that mushroom powder and add it into, you know, the red sauce that you're cooking for pasta or um, the stew that you're making or the soup. So for instance, in my cream of chanterelle soup that I make every fall, the, the porcini powder is kind of my secret ingredient in that soup just to make it a little more mushroomy. Um, it's a very deep flavor. It smells, when you inhale, you know, a bag of dried porcini, it's very different than fresh porcini. Um, it's just, it's earthier, it's toasty. Uh, you really feel like you're inhaling kind of the woods and the duff and the dirt uh, and all that. Um, so that's what I would do. I would dry it and powder it and then and then use it in all sorts of soups and stews and gravies and, and rubs and, um, and, you know, mushroom salts and things like that. Sweet. Do you, uh, do you have any like favorite fresh, uh, wild mushroom forage dishes that you like to make? Yeah. So, you know, each species of mushroom lends itself, um, to sort of different cooking styles. So for instance, I mentioned that Matsutake is kind of the favorite mushroom of Japan. And it took me a while to really love matsutake. You know, the mycologist David Aurora, uh, who wrote Mushrooms Demystified, famously referred to the flavor of matsutake as a provocative compromise between red hots and dirty socks, um, which is just a great way to put it because, you know, the dirty socks, that's the sort of the funky, fungally nature that all, you know, of all mushrooms, that sort of, you know, mushroomy flavor. But then matsutake also has this kind of spicy, almost cinnamon-like flavor to it. And I just find 
that it works much better with Eastern ingredients. So for instance, matsutake doesn't really want to be with olive oil and butter and cream and cheese and things like that, the sort of ingredients that we associate with more sort of Western mushroom cookery, you know, French and Italian style. Um, instead, it wants to be more with, you know, rice vinegar and soy sauce and sake um, and, um, and, 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 the, and those sort of ingredients. And so I find that I do a lot of Japanese dishes with matsutake. My favorite is sukiyaki, um, which is really just a super fun dish to make with all your mushroom hunting friends at the end of the day when you come in from the woods and you're dirty and you're tired and you just want to have a really fun dinner. Um, I'll set up, you know, the camp stove, you know, maybe we'll be out in the woods and do this, or if we're, you know, in my, in my dining room, we'll just set up the camp camp stove right on the dining room table and it's hot pot. Uh, and so everybody is just throwing stuff into the hot pot, you know, um, cabbage and onions and tofu and thinly sliced beef and that sort of thing. Um, but the base of the, of the hot pot, um, the sukiyaki base is made with soy sauce, sake wine, water, and sugar. It's a little bit sweet. And then you use the matsutake to infuse it. And so that flavor from the matsutake kind of takes it to another level. Um, it's already an amazing broth by itself, but then when you add the matsutake, it just takes it to this sort of ethereal new place. And then, and then you're just kind of cooking all the ingredients in the hot pot and it's super fun. Um, so that's probably my favorite dish to do with matsutake, but I'll also do, it's a robust mushroom with a lot of flavor and, and it's very firm and very meaty. And so I, I, I do a lot of Sichuan Chinese cooking and it's a mushroom that just stands up well to the sort of fiery ingredients of Sichuan cookery. So like Sichuan peppercorns, um, dried hot chilies, um, you know, ginger and garlic, that sort of stuff. So I'll do stir fries with matsutake. Um, we've mentioned, we've talked about dried porcini. Um, let's talk about the fresh porcini. I know that's probably the most popular mushroom from where you live. Um, and I just, I love it. Um, you know, it has, when you saute it, it has that kind of rich, nutty flavor, which I, I just tell people if they've never had porcini before, you just can't like have grocery store button mushrooms and think that you've experienced like the kingdom of fungi on a plate. Right. You Cause, know, cause yeah, the, the, the grocery store basically has one species of mushroom and it's just yeah, at different stages. I mean, stages. sometimes if it's a really good grocery store, maybe you'll get shiitake and oyster mushrooms and some others, but, but right, yeah. generally speaking, it's the bland grocery store button, which by the way, even when they change marketing names, it's the same species as Cremony and it's the same species mm -hmm. as Portobello, which is just a more right. mature um, button mushroom. They're all the same. Um, and it's perfectly fine, but it just doesn't begin to hint at the flavors that you get from porcini. Um, that rich nuttiness, you know, the Italians, besides calling um, those mushrooms porcini, which means little pigs, they have another um, expression for porcini. They call it poor man's steak uh, because with a nice, you know, big porcini button, you can just slice it into kind of, you know, quarter inch slices and throw them on the grill. You know, you can marinate it, throw it on the grill. 
and it'll just sort of turn golden brown on the outside and it'll be a little bit chewy on the inside and it'll be just rich and meaty and kind of nutty. Um, it, and it just doesn't, I mean, I guess it, I guess, you know, you're eating a mushroom, but at the same time, it seems like so much more than a mushroom. Um, and when I'm serving that to people who have never had porcini before, my favorite thing to do is just make crostini with it. So I'll just slice some, you know, baguette, um, put a little ricotta on that. The ricotta is very mild. Um, so it doesn't step on the flavor of the porcini, but it also acts as a kind of a nice glue because then I'll just, I'll th throw a slice of porcini onto the ricotta. It'll sort of stick there. And, uh, and then I'll just sprinkle, you know, some sea salt on that and a little herb from my garden. And I just present it that way on, on sliced bread. And that way you can really kind of get the flavor of the porcini. Um, but I also do elaborate, you know, stir fries with it and put it in risottos um, and um, roast it um, with other vegetables. And I do all sorts of things with porcini. Um, and then morels, because we've talked about morels today. You know, a lot of people who have had um, wild mushrooms, the morel is kind of their first experience. And I don't even know how you begin to describe morels. We don't have the vocabulary um, to explain kind of what their flavor is like. Yes, they're sort of, they're meaty, but they're not meat. Yes, they're vegetably, but they're not vegetables. They're not plants. They're not meat. They're, you know, they're not animals. They're, 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 they're fungi. <laughs> and, um, and they, they're smoky and loamy and, um, they just, they have so much flavor. I love to make Italian style pastas with morels. Um, there's one that I make every year. I make a ragu with a sort of a cheap cut of lamb, like lamb shoulder or, or, or lamb neck. And, you know, that's sort of a classic spring ingredient and morels are a spring mushroom. And then I'll add some fava beans to that, another spring ingredient. Um, and it's just a really, for some reason, that taste combination, that lamb ragu with sauteed morels and uh, fava beans over a kind of fun shaped pasta like oraketa the little ears, um, you know, that's, that's a great way to enjoy morels. Um, I also, you know, at the same time that the morels are popping in my neighborhood, we also have the spring Chinook heading up river, um, you know, especially up the Columbia river. And, um, if I'm lucky enough to get my hands on a spring Chinook, um, I will just, you know, I'll grill that or roast that, um, with some, with some morels and, maybe make a little red wine reduction to go over that. Um, and we haven't talked much about chanterelles, but, you know, chanterelles are uh, definitely one of the wild mushrooms that gets people into mushroom hunting, especially where I live on the West Coast. We have several different species of chanterelle. They're pretty common. Um, that's often the mushroom that's sort of the gateway for people to get into mushroom hunting. And I think in other parts of the country, you know, especially New England um, and maybe even in the Southeast, there's some different varieties of chanterelle down there. Um, I think you have different types of chanterelles pretty much all over the country. Um, and generally they can be pretty common and a good way uh, to get people into mushroom hunting. And they're just so beautiful, you know, golden yellow. Um, some of them are almost orange. Um, we have a white variety out here that's quite tasty. Um, so there's lots of different chanterelles 
And they, chefs will often tell you that they have hints of stone fruit in them, particularly apricot. Um, so they have kind of a sweetness um, that's somewhat unique in the mushroom world. Um, and they're just, they're just really fun to cook with. Um, they look great on the plate. Um, they, they marry well with lots of in, different ingredients. I find, especially uh, with a cut of pig, uh, chanterelles are wonderful. Um, and, um, you know, there's all kinds of things that I, that I make with, with chanterelles. Um, so, you know, mushrooms in general are just fun to cook with and they will inspire you to get creative. Um, they're great substitutes for meat. Um, so for vegetarian and vegan, uh, diners out there, mushrooms really are just, they're wonderful. Um, and, um, there's so much interesting cuisine around the world that's mushroom based. So it's a great introduction to other cuisines. Um, and, uh, and so I, I just can't, you know, recommend cooking with them enough. Yeah, I can attest to that. Uh, and I have not cooked with as much variety as you, that's for sure. Well, I've got a few, I've got a few years of mushroom hunting under my belt, you know, and uh, I'm a bit older than you. So and, yeah. you, know. you, you, you wrote a whole book on it, so uh, I, I'm not going to take it too, too hard. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit. And I found that I really, I didn't know how to cook before I started foraging. I was pretty lame in the kitchen. Um, thinking back on sort of my early twenties, that's, that's when I kind of embarked, you know, I got through, you know, college without really knowing how to cook. Um, but it was the foraging that inspired me to really learn my way around the kitchen. Um, and when you're bringing home these extraordinary in ingredients, uh, from the wild, and then maybe you see what they go for at the marketplace because they can often be pretty expensive. It kind of spurs you to uh, learn some technique um, because you want to do honor to these foods. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's really how I got into cooking through the foraging. It was kind of a tandem process and it's a lifelong pursuit. I'm, you know, every year I, learn new dishes and new techniques and, and new cuisines from around the world. And, um, there's, you know, too much to, to learn at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big cooker, but, uh, there's so many cuisines that I haven't like tried my hand in. Um, so, uh, for those listening, Langdon has a great, uh, list of recipes on his website and I'll include that in the show notes. There's probably, geez, like 40 or 50 um, recipes with all kinds of different mushrooms. So if you're looking for inspiration, um, that's a good place to start. And then, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have too much else for you. Uh, do you want to tell the people about when your new edition is coming out? And maybe uh, if you want to talk about your other books, you're, you're welcome to do that as well. So actually, since this episode came out, Langdon's book has been released in stores. So you can find that on his website, which I'll include a link to. You can also look it up. It's called The Mushroom Hunters. And the new edition has been updated with new taxonomic information, scientific names. And then as far as my other books go, I think I mentioned Fat of the Land, which is a collection of personal essays on wild foods. Those are um, almost told like stories. It's really about me and my friends just learning how to forage in the early years and 
but there's a lot of natural history. There's a lot of culinary lore. Um, and each chapter ends with a recipe. Um, so that's kind of fun. So unfortunately, Langdon's mic seemed to cut out for the rest of the interview. Um, it was already getting kind of long, so I think we'll just end it there. Um, Langdon did go on to talk about his other book, which is called Upstream, Searching for Wild Salmon from River to Table. This is just from Amazon. Uh, Langdon Cook introduces us to tribal fishermen handing down age-old traditions, sport anglers seeking adventure and a renewed connection to the wild, and scientists and activists working tirelessly to restore salmon runs. In sharing their stories, Cook covers all sides of the debate. The legacy of overfishing and industrial development, the conflicts between fishermen, environmentalists, and Native Americans, the modern proliferation of fish hatcheries and farms, and the long-standing lines of science versus politics, wilderness versus civilization. And with that, I think we'll just wrap up the episode. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, um, please consider subscribing, rating, or telling a friend about the podcast. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Remarkable Mushroom Emporium, or you can search Ryan's Remarkable Mycology Podcast. Both of those should work fine. Um, on Instagram, we just actually streamed our first full episode of the podcast, which was all about ethnomycology and the spiritual and traditional uses of psychedelic or entheogenic uh, mushrooms in Mesoamerica. Um, it was a really great talk with Greg Sanchez, who's been the Colorado Mycological Society president three separate times. So I will be hopefully doing that a lot more in the future and promoting it a little bit more widely. Um, I, di I didn't really do a great job of promoting it this time around, but we still had a good amount of people come in and, and join the fun. Uh, mushroom season is wrapping up here in Colorado. I'm going on my last official foray this Sunday, so kind of a uh, bittersweet, um, but you know, I'll just use this time to perfect my craft of podcasting and growing mushrooms. Um, so yeah, that should about do it. I think if you stayed this long, um, I owe you a little bit of a secret. Well, not maybe not a secret, but a recommendation. Um, I read this book recently called Open Water, and I just loved it. It was sort of a mix between a love story and also an examination of the intergenerational trauma that living in a racist society has on black men. Um, I thought it was just exquisitely written, very poetic and filled with emotion. Um, so it's only 164 pages too. I finished it in like a day and a half. It was a, a really quick read, but also very um, impactful. So definitely, uh, if you're a, if you're a reader, check that out. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to sign off. Thank you so much for tuning in, and stay tuned for more episodes. <laughs>